Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We took a couple of weeks off to look at the Christmas story, and now we are jumping full speed ahead into the gospel of John. And uh, actually, um, kids, glad that you're here this morning. This is a great passage of scripture for all of us, and, and I hope it's a best passage, great passage of scripture for you. Um, if you didn't, on the way in, get a sermon notes page, maybe, uh, maybe one of our ushers can grab some and pass it on to you so you can take some good notes. Um, and by the way, kids, did you guys have a good Christmas? Yeah? Everybody's like, well, I got some of the gifts on my list. Um, now hopefully you got most of the things on your list, and whatever you didn't get, it was for good for you, okay? Um, actually, speaking of things on the Christmas list, uh, I remember back when I was in high school, and I did not get something on my list. It was something that I hoped for, or something that I yearned for, but here's the interesting thing. It actually never got on my Christmas list, and here's the reason why. So back when I was in high school, there were these these, uh, there was this thing called the Magic Eye Book Series. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it was, it was made up of stereograms. I'm actually going to show a picture of one up here. You guys can, can look at it, zoom in as much as you can. I don't know if this first service, it doesn't work too well. Maybe it's because it's too big. I'm not sure. But all I know is this. Oh, he's do- lowering the lights. Maybe that would help. Anyway, uh, the stereogram is kind of you look at it. And then all of a sudden, there pops out this 3D image that you've never seen before. And I remember when I was in high school, these things were super popular. Everybody was like, oh, do you see it? I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't see it. It drove me crazy. And I so wanted to, to get the, one of these big poster stereograms. Is anybody seeing anything yet? Maybe. Oh, man, you guys are right with me. Uh, actually, it's a picture of Jesus, and he's got his arms out like this, just to let you know. But um, anyway, so these stereograms, they were really popular, but, and I longed to get one, but I could never really see it. And so I never put it down on my Christmas list because I was ashamed. I didn't want to miss out. Everybody else could see, but I couldn't see. Well, throughout the Gospels, and specifically the Gospel of John, Faith and sight are inextricably linked together. There's a seeing on the surface, and then there's this seeing that's deeper and wider and fuller that the gospel of John invites us into. You know, we've already seen that Jesus was born. We've seen that Jesus teaches. We've seen that Jesus heals We've seen that Jesus does miracles. We've seen that Jesus die. And now today, we're going to see something all together more glorious and amazing. We're going to see Jesus rise from the dead. This is totally different. So the big idea for this morning is seeing Jesus changes everything. Seeing Jesus in his risen form changes everything. So we're going to walk through two things. Um, our, our, the theme for today is seeing the risen Savior. And, and the first point is the story of seeing the risen Savior. And then the second is the significance of seeing the risen Savior. But before we, we jump into the text, uh, let me just pray for us. Let me pray that God would give us eyes to see. 
Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Oh God, may we see, may we hear, may we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that not only you died on the cross for our sins, but that you were buried and you were raised on the third day to the glory of God the Father. Would you make that real in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, the story of seeing the risen Savior. We're just going to walk kind of verse by verse through John chapter 20. And uh, we're going to kind of look at three main scenes. So scene one is darkness before the dawn. And so we're just going to walk through verses one and two. Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. But off the bat, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene. Uh, she's from Magdala on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke 8, 2 records that She at one point was possessed by seven demons. She experienced intense mental and emotional disturbances. She was often unable to control herself. She was in complete darkness and despair. And then Jesus healed her. He restored her. And from that point forward, she was never the same. She followed the light of the Lord, and she walked in the light as he was in the light. But then on Friday, as we've been reading, Mary entered into darkness once again. She saw her Lord publicly and shamefully executed on the cross. And as the sun went down on her Savior, all her dreams of Jesus being the true Messiah were dashed. And throughout the weekend... She was in darkness. And that's why, what does it say? John says here on Sunday morning, while it was still dark. Not just her, but we know from other gospel accounts that there were other women with her carrying spices to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body properly for burial. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Salome and Joanna, they too had witnessed Jesus' death And now they're going to the tomb. And Luke records that was early dawn. Matthew records that it began to dawn. But John, kind of using this metaphor of darkness, says it's still on the dark side of dawn. Quite possibly, even physically, there was still a darkness. There was was kind of a haze. Um, If you've ever been to Israel, there's the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. And there's an eastern desert on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so as the sun would rise over the Mount of Olives, it would cast a shadow over the city of Jerusalem. And so that's possibly what John is kind of referencing here as well. The city would be absorbed in this sort of dusky darkness. And while it is still dark, Mary Magdalene arrives and she sees the tomb taken away. Now, John is going to give us five different words for see. And this is the first one. It's just a, a common word for see, blepo. And so with Mary's physical eyes, all she can see is what's right in front of her. And she, she has one possibility that she's concluded. They've taken away the body. 
She currently lacks to see the faith for any other reason for the empty tomb. The pain, the confusion, the anxiety, the fear, the darkness, they all fill up Mary's soul. Fear sets in and that fight or flight sort of syndrome kicks in and she's going to run. That's the only thing that she can do. So Mary runs to tell the leaders of the disciples, Peter and John, and she shares their conclusion. What does she say? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. For Mary, it was still dark. You ever been in that place of darkness? Where you can see but only what's right in front of you? And all you can conclude is there's no hope. There's only death. There's only one explanation. My life and my light have been stolen away. And there's no way to find it again. Mary is in that place. The other disciples are in that place. They're in a place of darkness. But things are about to change. Scene two. Light begins to shine. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Like an eyewitness account, and I'm sure John is kind of one-upping Peter. He's like, this is going to be in Scripture for the rest of the, rest of the end of the days. <laughs> I beat you to the tomb. We don't know if John was maybe faster, if he was a cross-country runner. Maybe he was a younger guy. We don't know. But all we know is that he's the first to get there. And he stoops to look in. This is the second word for see, paracupto. And, it, and most likely there was this cave-like sort of structure where John would, would kind of peer in. But he, and he sees, the, he sees the grave clothes, but he doesn't go all the way in yet. He's still processing. He's yearning to see beyond what he sees. What is this? And the darkness is beginning to dissipate. Then Simon Peter, verse 6, came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths, which has been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Love this, like Peter's personality, like a bowl in a china shop. He just runs straight in. No pause, just reckless abandonment. I've got to see. But this is a different word for see, theoreo, where we get the word to theorize. It's to consider, to look on attentively. Peter is trying to make sense of what he sees. Can he really get what's going on? He sees, but does he really see? Maybe there's something grander, more amazing that's happening that, that he doesn't yet see. Peter doesn't know, but he longs to know. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John sees as well, but he sees and believes. Another word for see, edo. It means to see with understanding, to perceive, to know deeply, to behold, to cherish. The form of the verb indicates a breakthrough of faith for John. 
he sees and believes. And while John does not yet fully know or understand the scriptures, he knows one thing. Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's looked at the evidence, an empty tomb, the grave claws, and a folding face cloth next to, next to it. And, and he doesn't see thieves taking the body away. He doesn't see anyone else removing the body. He sees with eyes of faith the risen Savior. Though he cannot explain it, he sees and believes. Like the stereogram, he is beginning to see the picture within the picture. He sees beyond the grave clothes and beholds and cherishes the risen Savior. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is eyes of faith to see Jesus even when we don't yet see him face to face. I want you to think back on the first time when you saw Jesus for who he is and what he has done for you. The joy, the marveling, the astonishment, the glory, all of those things just wrapped up in your mind's eye, in your heart as you see Jesus for the very first time. Think back a couple of weeks ago to our baptisms, eight wonderful testimonies of people seeing the risen Lord. And and think back on their joy and their enthusiasm for Jesus and what he had done for them. That's what's going on with John. Then verse 10, a little kind of anticlimactic here. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And before we kind of beat them up over this, uh, we don't, we don't want to, you know, just kind of get upset with them too much here. Because in Luke 24, 12, it says that Peter went home marveling. Still pondering what truly took place. Peter and John, where do they want to process this? Where do they want to talk about what they've seen and heard? at home with their family. Peter was married. He probably wanted to tell his wife, I I don't get it. I don't understand it. But Jesus isn't there. John, he races home. He wants to tell his brother James. Remember, he's taking care of his Jesus's mother, Mary, now. Jesus, your son, I, I think he's alive. I haven't seen him, but I see him. This is what faith is longing to see more of Jesus. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're beginning to see the picture. It's still fuzzy, but the darkness is beginning to dissipate. Light is beginning to pierce in, and they see Jesus. We're going to take a pause from Peter and John, and we'll move back to them uh, next time. But for right now, we're going to move back to Mary Magdalene. She does not go home. She is frantically trying to discern how her Lord could be gone. But scene three takes place. I've seen Jesus. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary is weeping. It's an uncontrollable sort of crying. It's it's a moaning. It's lamenting. It's a wailing. Think back to John 11 when Mary and Martha and those around them were mourning and weeping over Lazarus, who was dead. Just overwhelmed with grief is Mary. But these are, are tears of love. They're of gratitude. They're of immense thankfulness for what Jesus has done for her. She misses him greatly. And all she wants to do is just give him a proper burial. She wants to bring nice spices to prepare his body appropriately, to show him all that, that, she, that he means to her. And now, like John, Mary stoops to look in. Same word, paracupto. And then she sees Thereo, angels, who ask her, Why do you weep? Whether it's the circumstances, um, maybe it's her tears, maybe the, the angel's bright and shiny appearance is kept from her, whatever the case, she doesn't seem to be startled at this point by the angels or possibly even recognize them. Her eyes are kept from seeing, and she still can only conclude one thing. Based on what I see, there's only one option. They have taken away my Lord. Verse 14. But having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She sees, but she does not yet know this man to whom she speaks. And Jesus, the great question asker, asks Mary again, just like the angels, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? These are the most crucial questions, not just for Mary, but for all of us. If Jesus is alive, why are you weeping? Are you seeking a dead teacher? Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking the risen Lord? And then Jesus said to her, Mary. Now Mary sees. Now she hears the shepherd calling her by name. Immediately her distress vanishes because there is something far better than she ever hoped for or dreamed possible. Instead of the dead body that she hoped to recover, now she finds herself face to face with the risen Lord. D.A. Carson says, anguish and despair are swallowed up by astonishment and delight. And so Mary responds. It says, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. But in its Aramaic form, it's more emphatic. It's, it's perhaps even more honoring than the typical teacher rabbi. Jesus is saying, I've, excuse me, Mary is saying, I've seen the Lord. It's really you. It's you, Jesus. And so Mary clutches Jesus. She holds on to him lest he... Lest she lose him again. She wants to just just cling to him so closely. 
And in response, Jesus says to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's a variety of ideas about what Jesus all meant when he says, don't cling to me. But he seems to be saying at least two things. One is, hey, Mary, don't cling to me because you have a mission. As the first witness to my resurrection, I want you to go and tell others what you have seen and heard. My work is complete, but your work is not complete. Tell the good news of the risen Lord. It's to be shared, not held on to for yourself. But then also Jesus seems to be saying, don't cling to me because I am about to ascend to my father and our relationship is going to be different. Remember, it's to your advantage that I go away because then the spirit, my spirit will come. And so your relationship with me, with tasting and touching and feeling, that's going to be superseded by a totally different sort of relationship, a spiritual relationship where I'm not just going to be seen with physical eyes. I'm actually going to be experienced in your heart. And wherever you go, I will go. My resurrection is the beginning of my ascension back to the Father. In verse 18, how does Mary respond? Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Mary sees the Lord. Last word for see or ra'o. It means to see clearly with one's eyes, to experience in order to respond. Mary has seen the Lord and now she responds with worship, adoration, thanksgiving, praise. And she's on mission. She wants to go tell everyone what she has seen and heard. She is so dramatically changed for Mary. When she has seen the Lord, everything changes. (laughs) I've seen the Lord, guys. I've seen the Lord. Have you truly seen Jesus? Have you seen him and witnessed his amazing character and glory? Do you know that the Savior is alive? I was thinking back um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a, with a guy who's, who's been coming to Four Oaks. Actually, grew up in the church. Actually, been coming to Four Oaks for quite some time. But, but all of a sudden, last year, about this time, everything changed. He said, I saw Jesus for the very first time. My eyes were opened. And, and, and now as he's recounting his stories, and he baptized next month, by the way, he's just like, everything is different for me. Now he wants to share the gospel with his, with his coworkers. He wants to lead devotions with his family. Everything's changed for him. So what about for you? Have you truly seen Jesus and everything changed for you? Maybe you're still on the journey of seeing. If that's you, maybe you're kind of in this progression of seeing that we've been talking about. And you're not yet there yet to Orao. You're not that year to worship and praising Jesus. Let me tell you something. Don't give up. God promises that you will find him if you search for him with all of your heart. Continue to long. Remember what I said earlier. Faith is longing to see more of Jesus. 
Long to see more of Jesus. Don't lose hope. Keep searching after him. Keep, keep longing for him. Keep looking for Jesus. And you'll find him. And we're going to see more people and more stories of, of seeing Jesus in his resurrected form in the Gospel of John over the next few weeks. But I just want to take some time now to examine why is this so important? What's the significance of seeing the risen Savior? So point two, the significance of seeing the risen Savior. You know, there was a survey of Americans recently uh, found that 85% of Americans believe that Jesus walked the earth. 65% of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Only 50% believe that they will live forever. And only 25% of Americans believe and have committed to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? There seems to be this massive disconnect between seeing and seeing. There's this disconnect between a faith that you just kind of, oh yeah, I believe, versus a faith that really affects people and provokes change. There's a seeing Jesus on the surface, and there's a seeing Jesus in all of his glory 3D. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it should change everything for us. There's a book called Risen. Um, it gives 50 reasons why the resurrection is important. It came out a few years ago. We're going to cover all of them right now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, we're going we're to look at briefly from the text at five reasons why seeing Jesus is so significant. As we move into the new year, I want us to just ask that God would give us eyes to see Jesus as who he truly is, that he is not a dead Savior. He is a risen Lord. And just to help you guys out, they all start with P.S. There you go. It's kind of like the end of the sermon, the P.S. at the end. It's a little bit longer than the P.S., though. It's more like 10 or 15 minutes. But anyway, here's, here's, the, here's the first thing. When we see Jesus risen, we have proven scriptures that are reliable and trustworthy. There's many great books and messages out there about the reliability of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection including one by an agnostic turned believer named Josh McDowell. You guys may be familiar with it, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But I want to commend to you today, more than any of those types of books or messages, the scriptures themselves that point to Jesus' death and resurrection. If you guys remember, when John sees and believes, he says that Pete and Peter did not yet understand the scriptures. What does that mean? That later they did. They began to see things with new eyes and Jesus not only predicted his death, burial, and resurrection throughout his earthly ministry, but the Old Testament prophesied to the very same thing. I'm just going to share with you two real quick. I've been going through the book of Hosea for my quiet times, and I was, was reading a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, and I was like, whoa, it's just right there, about 700 years before Jesus comes. Come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Just a little hint. On the third day, Jesus is going to rise from the dead, and you will be revived. You will be given life when you turn to him. Isaiah 53 Amazing passage about Jesus' death, but don't focus on the end that talks about his resurrection. But look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus will take the punishment for our sin, and then he will see his offspring, the children of faith, meaning he is going to rise from the dead. He's going to see all those who put their faith in him. What's my point? The scriptures over and over reveal that this has always been the plan of the Lord. God has proven time and again that his word is reliable and trustworthy, and it can be believed in, relied upon, and proclaimed. It's one story with Jesus at the very center of it. So, Four Oaks, we have proven scriptures. So let's go to them in this new year. This is our life. This is our hope. This is what we can rely upon. Let's go to the proven scriptures. Second, because we have a risen Savior, we have a personal shepherd who knows us by name. I love Jesus' interaction with Mary. You know, he first starts out with a few questions, and then all he has to say is one word, Mary. And all the emotion, all the memories flood in for, for Mary. John 10, 3 says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus knows his sheep by name. He calls them by name. He cherishes them. He, he comes alongside of them. And, and Jesus isn't just a dead shepherd. He is a risen shepherd who still calls out to his sheep by name to worship him, to follow him, to hear his voice. And here's what's amazing, guys. Jesus has a particular affinity for those who are seen by the world as unimportant and unwelcomed. Remember, I talked about this at Christmas Eve service. Of all the people that God chose to be the first witnesses of Jesus' birth, it was the shepherds, people who were seen as outcasts, people who were unwelcomed by society, people who weren't even welcome to give sacrifice at the temple. That's who God chose as his first witnesses. And in the same way, of all the people, God chooses a once demon-possessed woman to be the first witness of his resurrection. I love this. No matter who you are, no matter what your story is, Jesus says, I know you by name and you are important to me. Here's what's even crazier. Even though it's not admissible in court at this time, 2,000 years ago, a woman's testimony is the first one mentioned in all four Gospels. God loves women, cherishes them, appreciates them, have immense value and worth. And so it's as if God is telling us, he's saying, hey, though the people of the world may discount this story, Mary Magdalene's story, I choose what the world deems foolish to shame the wise. I oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. Four Oaks, we are known and loved by a personal shepherd. Not only that, since Jesus is the risen Savior, we have a perfect sacrifice whose death was sufficient. It's not enough for Jesus just to die. Very important. Jesus had to take our sin upon himself. But he also must rise from the dead to prove that his death was accepted by the Father. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Apostle Paul, Apostle John, 
all of the apostles say, it's absolutely fundamentally important that you know that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He had to rise from the dead to prove that his death was sufficient. Romans 4, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he didn't just die for our sin. He rose so that we could be declared righteous. We could be forgiven of all of our sin. I'm sure as Peter is on his way home marveling at what he has seen with the empty tomb, and he's still trying to process all of this, he's like, the last time I saw Jesus, I was betraying him for the third time. Could it be true? Could Jesus' death really be for me? Could my sin, even my worst sin, be washed away? Could I be cleansed? Could I be forgiven? No matter what sin we might have, what did we sing earlier? Not the sin, not in part, but in a whole, was nailed to the cross. Amazing, perfect sacrifice. No more shame, no more guilt for those who look to Jesus. So rest in his death and resurrection for you, the forgiveness of your sins, the justification that being declared righteous before a holy and righteous God is available to you by faith. Number four, because Jesus is alive, we have the preeminent son of God who invites us into his family. Jesus told Mary, he says, hey, go tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. I love that. Go tell my family. Go tell my brothers and sisters, those people who were, who were denying me, go tell them. They're my family. Paul gives further explanation when he says in Romans 1, 4, he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What's the idea? Jesus' resurrection confirmed that he is the preeminent Son of God. By his resurrection, he is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of highest esteem. He is worshiped and adored and esteemed by all who see him. But here's what's more amazing. Not only is Jesus in that place of high esteem, but he is interceding for you and for me. He's got the Father's ear. He's talking to the Father on our behalf. He's preparing a place for us. And if you remember back a couple of months ago, I talked about how it's like Jesus takes our hand and links it with the hand of the Father and kind of moves out of the way so that we can have direct access to the Father. He's not just Jesus' Father. He's our Father as well. Hebrews 2, I love this too. It says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. There's no grandchildren in the family of God. We are all the children of God. We are adopted and accepted. And the preeminent Son of God invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace and to enjoy all the benefits and blessings that come from being co-heirs with Christ. An inheritance, as Peter talks about, that's, that's undefiled and kept waiting for us. 
Last but not least, because Jesus is alive, we have a powerful sovereign who rules and one day will return. The founder of Islam is dead. His bones lie dormant in the ground. The founder of Confucianism, the founder of Buddhism, the founder of all other man-made religions are dead. But the founder of Christianity is alive. And he's making all things new. The resurrection tells us that the kingdom of God is ruled by a living, powerful sovereign. Death will not be victorious. Sin will be destroyed. And Satan and his demons will be vanquished. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The powerful sovereign has conquered death. He's conquered all. If you guys are a Lord of the Rings fans out there, I love what Sam says to Gandalf. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And then Gandalf responds, the shadow is being removed. In other words, absolutely, the light of the resurrection is shining. Folks, we have a great hope that in Jesus Christ, as the powerful sovereign, one day we will enjoy the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. All of the sad things are becoming untrue. However, the powerful sovereign's rule is not just for the future, but it's for the right here, right now. Jesus wants to make it clear that because he is alive, he's living in us, and he wants to work powerfully through us. Just as the disciples were changed and everything about them was different. But seeing Jesus face to face, for them, everything changed in the same way. He longs that to happen for us as well. So think about the sin that so easily entangles you or so easily entangles me. The thing that just, just keeps us oh, down so often. I keep going back to that. Jesus says, I am the powerful sovereign and the the power that raised me from the dead. The powerful spirit now lives inside of you and gives life to your mortal bodies. You can get rid of that sin that so easily entangles you. When your faith is weak, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That relationship that appears dead, I want to breathe new life into it. That hope that lies dormant or that dream that that lies fallow, whatever it might be. Jesus says, I am the powerful sovereign. I I rule and reign over all. And I want to bring those hopes and dreams to life. I want to bring light into the darkness. It's good news, Four Oaks. Jesus is alive. He is risen. You know, I started by saying that there is this type of seeing where we don't see, and then there's a seeing where we do. There's a seeing with our physical eyes, and then there's a seeing with our spiritual hearts. I pray that the best and most important thing on your Christmas list, or even if it's not on your Christmas list, I pray that it would be granted to you to see the risen Savior in all of his glory, and that he would change everything for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.